Undeceptions podcast. The best role models for young men are probably men most people have never heard of, who do jobs you never want to, and who live the kind of lives that will never make the headlines. Imagine a DeLorean time machine car appears outside your house this year and you get in and you're told that you're going to 2052 to see what the future looks like. You arrive and you see what it actually looks like 30 years from now. Do you want that future? What would you do to get there or to get away from that future? That's what we're going to find out. How about this? There was a real gotcha moment in the YouTube video. A young man was going about in a US town and he was asking one question. He was stopping women in the street and asking them, what do you think of this guy as a role model for young men? The guy in question, Andrew Tate. Now, if you don't know Andrew Tate, he's the enfant terrible of uh, misogyny and boorish laddish ideas. He has, or had, until he was cancelled, a massive social media following. Now, his advice for young men was Neanderthal to say the least, and corny at times, and downright dangerous at others. It was stuff like this. A nine gets a dinner out. A six only gets a glass of water. Or how about this? The masculine perspective is you have to understand that life is war. It's a war for the female you want. It's a war for the car you want. It's a war for the money you want. It's a war for the status. Masculine life is war. Never mind real war in places like Ukraine. Looking at his photos online, it's hard not to smirk at the trying too hard thing about Andrew Tate. The six pack, the yacht, the cars, the everything that smacks of a cliche. But here's the thing. He's followed by millions, millions of men, millions of young men, school student young men. Well, you know you're getting old when you only find out about an online star when he gets cancelled. So I asked my son, when Tate blew up on mainstream media for being cancelled, have you heard of this guy? Of course was his response, everyone knows who he is. Well, everyone who's anyone, I suppose. But back to the YouTube video, I said it was a gotcha moment because the Andrew Tate question wasn't the end of it. There was a follow-up question. The young guy who was doing the video asked this. So if not Andrew Tate, then who? Who are the role models you would like to see for young men? And the answer invariably was silence. For all of the responses, at least the ones that made it to the YouTube video, all of the responses were silence. And it was not hard to see the point being made. Okay, ladies, and it was women being asked, You don't like this bloke, you show revulsion and you show shock at him, you disdain him. But who else? Who are the men that you are pointing your young men towards? Who are the role models that show what healthy masculinity is supposed to be like? And the silence, for the YouTuber at least, that silence was golden. Because it was the gotcha moment, it was the viral video moment. 
Everyone knew that masculinity was not supposed to be like that, but no one was coming up with an alternative. Or perhaps they were, but the names were not rolling off their tongues. No superstar masculine types in order to go, not that, but this. And it did feel like a gotcha moment, and perhaps a revealing moment too. Here's a short test. Think of a word that goes in front of masculinity. You got it? Your reflex thought was toxic, wasn't it? It's as if toxic masculinity is now a compound word, two words that we simply assume go together, and which we increasingly, in the modern West at least, find hard to tear apart. It's as if masculinity in our world starts with that premise, and we now need to work backwards from that to craft something over and against it. Yet this raises questions. What are we crafting? Do we know the starting point? Can we even agree on it? For it seems like, with that YouTube video guy, we know what we don't want, what we don't like, but we're not so quick to articulate what we do want, what we do like. And if we're not sure, then there's little chance the next generation of young men is going to either. So where's it all going? Now the first of two things is this. Many of the alternate voices that attempt to define masculinity today have zero connection with most young men. Later today, I'm going to get my beard trimmed. My young Iranian barber, Mims, he's a gun and he's always busy. He bought the barber shop earlier this year and he's got that young, edgy thing going. The doof doof cars out the front. His clientele are all mostly anyway, young blokes, not tertiary educated, a range of people, Middle Eastern, Sudanese, young white tradies, all in for a sharp fade or a beard styling. And as I sit there, the banter flows, talk about the weekend, talk about girls, and the music midweek is toned down. It's for the mums with their boys, Mim says almost apologetically. But on the weekend, Saturday morning, when everyone's around, he beefs it up for the lads. And beefs it up means hardcore rap, with some, shall we say, interesting lyrics. Perhaps lyrics that Andrew Tate would approve of. But Mim's no slouch. He's built a great business. It takes a ticket and a wait for about half an hour or 45 minutes before you get your hair done or your beard done. He works hard. He looks after his mum. He trains apprentices. He knows my son's name. He knows the undercut and fade that he likes. The world he doesn't recognise, the masculinity that he thinks isn't masculinity, is that described by the Australian newspaper's Nicky Gemmell. Now, in his great new book, The Manual, Getting Masculinity Right, Al Stewart, author and church leader, quotes Gemmell. And Gemmell states this, Feminine men, in my experience, are more confident and therefore comfortable with their sexuality. Give me a man who's comfortable enough to wear nail polish. Give me a playful man who never entirely grows up. To which Al and I might add, part of the problem in our culture is that men haven't grown up. They're still boys. Now, granted, the barbershop crowd likes to play up their laddishness, but there's a seriousness about being a man to them that sees the likes of Mims 
push through and build a business after being a migrant from Iran. Gemmell's response to masculinity is, wait for it, femininity. Yet she's running a category error right there. In a sense, she's too restrictive on men. You see, I know a quiet, bookish and book writing librarian and he's not into sport and he's gentle and he was responsible for creating one of the best libraries I've ever been a member of. And he's masculine. And I have a brother who runs farms, owns a construction business, shoots wild pigs, fishes miles off the coast and can hoist an air conditioner compressor on his shoulder and up a ladder. And he's masculine. They're both men. They're both masculine. As Al Stewart points out in his book, healthy masculinity isn't found in being more feminine. He argues against the idea that somehow gender-neutral men must be safer than masculine men. Listen to Al's words. The more men who will sacrificially love and care for those around them, the safer our society will be, especially for the vulnerable. The man who has a healthy masculinity is concerned to care for others. The truly masculine man makes the people around him feel safe, whether librarian or farmer. Now, perhaps you wince at those words. Uh, there's a reason, and that's because you've been schooled into thinking that if blokey Andrew Tate is unsafe, then feminized men, to put it in Gemmell's terms, must be the safe alternative. But think about what Al Stewart said. There's no direct correlation between sacrificially loving and caring for others and Gemmell's ideal. Her ideal feminized man may be just as self-focused and selfish as the next more masculine man. The key to the masculinity that Al Stewart speaks of is not a librarian or a farmer or even feminine, but self-sacrifice. Putting the needs of others ahead of yourself. I don't want to call Mims and his clients to be more feminine. If anything, I want to call them to be more self-sacrificial. That will prove their manhood more than any doof-doof car or hardcore rap. Now, there's much more to say in this, but pick up Al Stewart's book if you can. Here's the second of two things. The best role models for young men are probably men most people have never heard of, who do jobs you never want to, and who live the kind of lives that will never make the headlines. In other words, ordinary men are the role models for other ordinary men. There was that YouTuber and his gotcha moment. You could almost see the discombobulation, the search for a combination of Jason Bourne, The Dark Knight and Matthew McConaughey. That's the kind of man we want for our boys, isn't it? To look up to. One that doesn't actually exist. Where were the women saying, actually my husband? or my son, or the man from the family next door who, because I was getting abused by my partner, confronted him. In other words, are we so bereft of plain rap masculine men that we have to outsource the idea of what a good masculine man is? Perhaps. You see, we live in an atomizing society, one in which I've mentioned before is increasingly living on its own. We marry later, have less children, we work harder and longer and have more mobility. We have less large family connections than ever. And in the West, at least, we don't do very clear male rites of passage. And no, getting drunk on your 18th birthday doesn't count. In our interconnected age, we live in a celebrity culture where those closest to influencing our young men are, well, influencers. 
And we use that term influencer as if it only came into being during the rise of YouTube and TikTok. Now, don't get me wrong. There were plenty of cultural influencers in the past telling men what being a man was. Dirty Harry, anyone? But the confluence of family decline, absent fathers, the shriveling of mediating institutions in our culture, such as youth centres and the like, plus the rise of influential immediacy online, has dialed down the number of masculine role models that young men can witness that are up close and personal. If we do to masculinity what we've done to so much ethical teaching for our young men, i.e. we outsource it to the state via the education system, then it won't hold any weight. Daniel Principe, a young man in Australia who runs anti-porn workshops in schools, says this, What chance does a black and white consent curriculum in a school have against the online world that is technicolored and influential? And it's the same with masculinity. And it's not as if our young men are flourishing. As Principe observes following his talks at schools, young man after young man rushes up to him or emails him later, thanking him for showing them what it might mean to be masculine, to be self-sacrificial and self-denying in a self-indulgent and self-expressive world. In other words, for that short period during a school incursion, Daniel is their role model. They want something better than what Andrew Tate offers. They want something stronger than what Nikki Gemmel lords. So what can we do about this? Now, I've only scratched the surface of the issue, and of course, that's all we can do in what is an evolving cultural matter. But the counter to the gotcha moment isn't a big name. It's a series of little names, or more to the point, of no names. It's a web of men who see self-sacrifice as the key to being masculine. So let me finish with how one such web has influenced a young man I know, a young man I have a particular interest in, my 14-year-old son. Now, my son is not flashy. He's gentle and kind. He's masculine, of course. But who said gentle and kind isn't masculine? He came home from a school camp recently, a formation tenting and bush camp for Year 9 boys. And he was telling me how one of the ropes instructors said to him after being introduced to him, wow, you've got a great handshake. And then my son said this to me, Mike taught me how to shake hands. Mike? And then I remembered Mike, a blokey old farmer type who turned up at our church. He and his wife, no nonsense outback types, big hearted. He held out his hand to my son on the first day at church as older farmer types do, <laughs> and shook his hand. And then he said to my son, here, let me show you how to shake hands properly. And that's what he did. Mike taught my son and a few other lads at church how to shake hands. Man to man, not toxic, not trying to squeeze the life out of his hand to prove something. Mike just got on with life at church, invited everyone to the farm, served where he could, and Mike taught my son how to shake hands properly. 
Now, Mike died of cancer very quickly a couple of years after coming to our church, but his funeral was packed with young men who had taught how to shake hands and who had taught how to do life well. And our church community is full of Mikes, not all called Mike, of course, and not all crusty farmer types. There's the almost too cool for school Tom and James, who take my son and the other young teen blokes to the movies and for burgers on their time, just hanging out and checking in from time to time. Or there's young, gentle Jake, who teaches my son how to play guitar and always asks after him. And Jordan and Carson, who have a crack and a laugh and teach him how to follow Jesus. And Duncan, a man of my age, who just recently came up to my son at church and asked him how he's going. And there's Andrew and Glenn and Kevin and a whole bunch of dads I know. Interestingly, here's what they have in common. All of those men follow the most masculine of men ever. Well, masculine in the Al Stewart definition, at least. What did Al say? The man who has a healthy masculinity is concerned to care for others. The truly masculine man makes the people around him feel safe. Self-sacrifice. If self-sacrifice, the putting out of ourselves for others, is a central key to non-toxic masculinity, then that's Jesus. He's our ultimate example. The same Jesus who was gentle and kind to the broken called out the toxic men when he saw them. The same Jesus who wept tears over the death of his friend Lazarus could drive out the money grubbers from the temple. There was nothing about Jesus that was self-serving. Everything was about serving others. Even at his trial, the Roman governor mockingly presented him to the crowd who would crucify him with these words, Behold the man! The gospel text, ironically, pitches the height of Jesus' masculinity at the point that he is sacrificing himself for the sake of others. And for the men I've just named, nameless to so many, names not on the lips of gotcha YouTubers, it's as if they've followed Jesus down that path. It's as if they're proving their masculinity not by how toxic they are, but by how much they serve others. So when it comes to masculinity, Jesus' death on the cross, the ultimate self-sacrifice, the shame on him, the rescue for us, pretty much nails it. Podcast.